0: What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray, Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Moran with a running start, Oh, Oh my goodness! <laughs> into it on the floor with Randolph, hard to tell if there are any punches being thrown under there, but
1: Griffin took exception to something, the officials break it up quickly.
0: <laughs> see, he just locked his arm and then kind of pulled him over, Zach falls down, and then, you know what, a little elbow there. Oh, he's digging the offense. Fans. Yeah,
1: you know. Welcome to Grits and Grinds, a Memphis Grizzlies podcast on the Blue Wire podcast network. My name is Keith Parrish. It's been five days since the Grizzlies season ended in that game five defeat to the Utah Jazz. The players have dispersed throughout the country already. Uh, John Morant's in Las Vegas. I believe Dylan Brooks is already there or is on his way there. This episode, I'm going to kind of wrap up the entire season, go through some stats and information that I think you will find interesting about all the players and some of the personal achievements and team achievements. I'll also give you some news from the media availability that happened on Friday, kind of the end of the year media availability. And I will also give you a couple more stats about the Utah series. I uncovered some things that I thought uh, grits and grinds, listeners would be very interested in as far as the tidbits or sound bites from media availability i don't think there was that much of use or of interest zach klyman addressed the media you know for the first time in a while zach klyman got an extension as a reward for a job well done for the grizzlies this year for them exceeding expectations I mean, the Grizzlies ended up, you know, making the playoffs, which is a huge achievement. Even Grizzlies writers and podcasters and people who cover the Grizzlies who are generally more optimistic maybe than the national media because they at least pay attention and they're excited about the Grizzlies young players and they think, you know, we have a strong organization. But even the Grizzlies' success this year, kind of outpaced what I think anyone was expecting, at least anyone I talked to. Longtime listeners probably remember that before the season started, I give a survey to a bunch of media writers and personalities, you know, asking them, how many games will the Grizzlies win? And the most optimistic one of them, I don't know if it was his true opinion, but actually Chris Vernon nailed it. He predicted the Grizzlies would win 38 games. And he's the only person to predict that number, the actual number that the Grizzlies won this season. If you count the play-in tournament and the playoffs, the Grizzlies finished the year 41 and 38. If you throw out all the games against the Jazz regular season and postseason, the Grizzlies were 40 and 31 against everyone else. That's pretty good. 9% of the Grizzlies games this year, 9% of all Grizzlies games ended in losses to the Jazz. Don't know if you thought of that. The Grizzlies played 79 times, and seven of those times they ended up losing to the Jazz. But you have to mark this as a successful season as they are ahead of schedule as they're one of the youngest teams in the NBA. They're one of the youngest teams to make it to the playoffs in recent memory. And the end-of-season media availability reflected that. Zach Kleiman talking about what a tremendous accomplishment it was. I think the most substantial thing that Zach Kleiman said was talking about how his goal for the organization is to win a championship, and everyone says that, but he was pointing out how the process of last year being in the play-in and losing, and this year being in the play-in and then making the playoffs and losing... That's all of the process of becoming a championship team. You have to go through those battles. He doesn't sound like someone who had his eyes on draft picks this year or any year. He wants to build up this team, and he thinks the way to become a championship team is to compete and try to win and then get to these certain levels and experience that as a team and build that experience, lay that foundation of competing in games that matter, and then you can build on that and build on that. Maybe I'm interpreting that or hearing that from my own personal anti-tanking bias, but it sounded like what he was saying was, yeah, we didn't consider trying to be bad this year because we had our own draft pick. We were just trying to win games, and we're going to keep trying to win games. I think it was in response to a question of, like, what are the next steps? Which is the common question for the front office guy. Like, what do you do next? Are you going to trade first round picks, you know, for uh, a different player? Or are you going to try to make some big free agent signing? That's the subtext, I feel like, of these questions of, like, what comes next? And he's just saying, we got to keep developing. We got to keep getting better. But it's very promising that we've gone through this process of taking these steps of losing in the play in and then winning in the play in this season and making the postseason. And then, The future gets brighter and brighter, you hope. He didn't shed any light on, you know, what are they going to do about Justice Winslow. He said, you know, maybe Justice could have had a little bit more of a runway was the word he used, the term he used to get back up to speed. But, you know, he thought they saw encouraging things. I asked him what his biggest frustration was. There's a lot of positives to be taken away from this season. Like, is there any regrets or frustrations he had about this kind of weird year? And he said it was that just the team never got to practice, and so it was hard to clarify things around the edges. Maybe it was difficult to figure out, you know, about some of the younger players to give them the opportunity or the newer players, the guys who hadn't been around that much. When asked, he said he was still very enthusiastic and optimistic about Brandon Clark, despite him ending the year with several DNP coaches' decision. And then he commented about the small market issue of attracting free agents and how he didn't feel like that was a thing. He thought players are going to want to play with Jaw and Jaron. He cited Tennessee having no state income tax. So Kleiman gave us, I think, the most interesting stuff of the day. Everything else, it was pretty boilerplate or cliche from the players. Some funny stuff here or there. I'm sure you probably read up on some of it. But wrapping up this season for the Memphis Grizzlies, it all starts with John Morant. I said last episode, you know, we answered some questions this year. A lot of questions were still raised, and we don't have the answers for them. Questions surrounding Jaron Jackson Jr., questions surrounding Brandon Clark. Like, maybe that's a little bit more of a mystery than it ever was. But there is no question about John Morant. He's the team leader. Kleiman said he's going to be an All-Star next year. That feels like a safe bet. He was almost an All-Star this year. But we know John Morant in the playoffs averaged 30.2 points per game. Balled out on a national stage with the highest of stakes. For the season, he averaged 19.1 points per game and 7.4 assists per game. He was just the fifth player ever in his first two seasons to average at least 19 points per game and seven assists per game and get his team to the playoffs. The other players to do it, Luka Doncic, Tim Hardaway, Kevin Johnson, and Oscar Robertson. So the five players in their first two seasons in the NBA to average at least 19 points per game and seven assists per game and get their teams to the playoffs. The Big O, Kevin Johnson, Tim Hardaway, Luka Doncic, and Ja Morant. The only two players to do it at the age of 21 or younger it's Ja Morant and Luka Doncic. The entire list of NBA players to average at least 19 points and seven assists in one of their first two seasons is Trey Young Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Damon Stoudemire, Penny Hardaway, Tim Hardaway, Kevin Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, Tiny Archibald, Oscar Robertson. There's no duds there. Ja Morant being in that company is great. I guess the worst player there is Damon Stoudemire. Damon Stoudemire was a good player. But Ja is going to be better than him. Ja is on a superstar trajectory. His 7.4 assists per game, that's the fifth highest assist per game in franchise history. He's only trailing Mike Bibby and Jason Williams. Both of them each had two individual seasons where they averaged over eight assists per game, but Jaw posted the fifth highest assist per game season in Grizzlies franchise history. Last season for Jaw ends up being the sixth highest, so he had a few more assists this year. Jaws shooting was a big question mark. He didn't have as good of a field goal percentage this season. A lot of that was because he was really slumping from three throughout a lot of the season. Before the All-Star break, John Morant was only 23% on three-pointers in those 24 games before the All-Star break. After the All-Star break, he really heated up. He was only 34% in total after the All-Star break, but he had a solid stretch from April 1st to the end of the regular season, where he made over 38% of his threes. So he finished up at 30% on three-pointers, which is not great, but you have to consider he was just at 23% when we got to the All-Star break. But John Morant is unquestionably the leader of this team and projects to be an All-Star. And Grizzlies fans, we have our fingers crossed that he becomes a superstar or an all-NBA-type player. The big question is, what about Jaron Jackson Jr.? And Jaron Jackson Jr., like I've said before, it's a lost season. I don't know what you can take from this season. He was very upbeat at his media availability and saying he's going to make all the changes, and he wants to put in the work, and he thinks he can put it together. But whatever optimism I might have had after his first two seasons thinking, you know, year three, he could be a near all-star. Now I just have question marks. I don't think you can take anything away from his season. The stats aren't good. The shooting stats are bad. His three-point shot wasn't there. His on-off net rating in the regular season was atrocious. It's the worst on the team. He had some good individual plays and made some nice individual plays on defense. But overall on defense, he just seemed... Out of sorts, less in control of his body than ever before, making a lot of bad mental mistakes as far as his fouling. So I don't know what to take from Jaron Jackson Jr. The opposite of that is our guy Jonas Valanciunas. The rock that you can depend on, Jonas Valanciunas. Jonas Valanciunas averaged a career-high 17.1 points per game, a career-high 12.5 rebounds per game, and a career-high 59.2% field goal percentage. The rebounds per game is a franchise record. He took the top spot away from Zach Randolph. His field goal percentage was the second highest season mark in Grizzlies franchise history behind Brandon Clark's incredible rookie season last year. Brandon Clark, unfortunately, took a pretty big step back. He's one of the players in the entire NBA who I think his stock took one of the biggest hits this season. In the offseason coming into this year, he was virtually untouchable in Grizzlies fans' fake trades. A lot of people were very high on Brandon Clark and his record-breaking rookie year. What went wrong? I mean, it's apparent it was the shot. He retooled his shot. Uh, his shooting stroke was dismantled. After setting records for his field goal percentage in his rookie season, his overall field goal percentage dropped 10 percentage points. You don't see that very much. He averaged virtually the same field goal attempts per game, and his field goal percentage went from 61.8% to 51.7%. His three-point percentage dropped from 35.9%, exactly 10 percentage points, to 26%. The big issue was this mid-range and this floater. Last season, in his rookie year, from 3 to 10 feet, he made 52.4% of his field goals. These are all these little floaters. This year, he only made 42.8% of them. From 10 to 16 feet last year, he made an absurd 54.9% of those shots. This year, 385 He went down by 16% on mid-range shots from 10 to 16 feet away from the basket. His free throw percentage... Dipped from 75.9% as a rookie to 69% this year. This offensive drop-off is just a huge bummer for Grizzlies fans. We don't know what to make of it. We don't know what it means for Brandon Clark going forward. Can he rebound? There are positives you can take from Brandon Clark's season. He looks way more in control of his body. He was a much better defender this year. He increased his steals by a lot this season. His blocks held steady while his fouls went down. So he was a more impactful defender. Coming into the NBA, everyone thought his thing was going to be defense, but then he became this otherworldly offensive player with his eye-popping field goal percentage last season. So his defense was there this year. It's just the shot disappeared. And he also he posted the lowest turnover percentage in Grizzlies franchise history. So his fouls went down. His turnovers went down. He never turned the ball over and he was good on defense. He just became this instead of being this dynamic scoring backup big, he transferred kind of into a defensive only big. If you could combine the defensive year two with the offensive year one, or even like 90% of the offense from year one, Well, now we're back in business and everyone's excited about Brandon Clark again. Now, a player that had a huge year for the Grizzlies who was somewhat mentioned on the fringes of the National Most Improved Player Award was Kyle Anderson. For the first time in his career, Kyle Anderson started every game and he had a career high. He averaged a career high 12.4 points per game, career high 3.6 assists per game, A career high 1.4 made three pointers per game. He shot 36% from three. Now, this was not even his career high in minutes per game, but he increased his previous career high of eight points per game all the way up to 12.4 points per game. Coming into this season, Kyle Anderson had two 20 point games. In the previous six seasons, his first six seasons in the NBA, Kyle Anderson had scored 20 points in a game twice. He had seven 20-point games this season. In his first six seasons in the NBA, he'd made two three-pointers in a game eight times. Five of them were last year. This season, he did it 28 times. He made at least two three-pointers in a game 28 times. He made six three-pointers in a game this year. Coming into this season, Kyle Anderson, for his career, had made 82 three-pointers. He made 94 this year. He beat his previous season high of three-pointers by 70. Again, he made more three-pointers this season than he did in the previous six seasons combined. But you know Kyle Anderson also, he did everything. He filled up the whole stat sheet. 12.4 points per game, 5.7 rebounds per game, 3.6 assists per game, 1.2 steals per game, and 0.8 blocks per game. The only other players in Grizzlies franchise history to match all of those marks in all those different statistical categories, it's uh, Mark Gasol and Sharif Abdul-Rahim. Kyle Anderson was so good this year. I think you could argue he was the Grizzlies' second best player behind John Morant. Maybe some people will say Jonas Valanciunas. Maybe some people will argue Dylan Brooks. But I think you can make a very strong argument that the reason the Grizzlies made the playoffs, it's John Morant, and I think the second most important or crucial to the Grizzlies winning games this year, was Kyle Anderson. He was so good, he's made the future cloudy for the Grizzlies. Coming into this season we were coming off a bubble performance where he didn't play that much. And it was like, oh, he's maybe not a part of Taylor Jenkins' plans. Maybe we need to trade him or find a new spot for him. This year, he was so good, it made it very weird in the postseason. Like, well, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s back, but Kyle Anderson's better. So what do we do? Do we play him with the three? How How do we shuffle these minutes? What do we do going forward? Kyle Anderson is so good, now it's like, well, we don't need Justice Winslow. Kyle's better than Justice Winslow. And next year, you have the big questions of if Jaron's totally healthy and Jonas is totally healthy, does Kyle become a sixth man? What do you do with him? Because he was so excellent this year. Another player who had quite the excellent year, or at least he finished the year on a very strong, excellent note, is obviously Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks was so good in the playoff series and in the lead up, the end of the season and the play in tournament that it almost has, like, totally shaken up how Grizzlies fans, I think, view this team and this roster. Three months ago, almost no one who covered the Grizzlies thought Dylan Brooks' future was as, like, a top three guy on any team. The most common refrain was, he might be best as the sixth man, or, you know, your fifth option on a good team. Like, if you're going to compete for a conference title... He's not going to be one of your best three guys. He's not going to be taking 17 shots per game. Well, what he did in the playoff series shook that all up. And it's like, oh, well, maybe he could be. I mean, to be clear, the Grizzlies lost, and they lost pretty hard in five games. But dropping 25.8 points per game in the playoffs and doing it, making over half your shots, it's a little bit eye-opening. At the very least, no one's talking about trading Dylan Brooks anymore, basically. Dylan set career highs this year in points per game, assists per game, steals per game, and free throw percentage. Those are all strong positives. He had some regular season highlights. He put up 23 points in a third quarter against the Miami Heat. A little bit of an Andre Iguodala revenge game. It was the second most points scored in a quarter by a Grizzlies player in franchise history behind Jaron Jackson Jr.'s 26 points against the Bucks last season. He also made huge leaps as a defender. Last preseason, or before the season started, Dylan Brooks said that he wanted to be, he wanted to make an all defensive team. And I think most people kind of snickered at that idea. We thought he was a fine defender like extreme effort, tries hard, decent defender. I don't think we thought of him as a lockdown defender. He made massive strides on the defensive end. To the end of the season, he had these games where he's having to trail Steph Curry, and he's bothering Steph Curry. He shut down DeMar DeRozan. He harassed Luka Doncic and forced a very bad shooting game from Luka. He made huge progress on that end. But I don't think we want to get too carried away or at least temper our expectations for next year somewhat based on how big the playoff performance was because overall, he's still a very inefficient player typically. His three-point percentage went down this season compared to last season. He's a below-average three-point shooter. His field goal percentage was under 42% this year. Dylan and Grayson Allen both averaged under 42% on their field goals this season, and that meant the Grizzlies joined the tanking Oklahoma City Thunder as the only two teams in the NBA this year to start two players for the majority of the season with sub-42% field goal accuracy. There were improvements, though. Especially Dylan's finishing at the rim. Last season, he only made 52% of his shots right at the basket. This season, he increased that to 59% accuracy on shots at the rim. In the postseason, he was phenomenal. Counting the play-in games and... The five games against the Jazz, Dylan made 28 out of 39 attempts at the rim, which is 72% at the rim. He starts making, you know, mid-60s percent. If he has that difference between the 59% in the regular season and the 72% he did in seven postseason games, if he gets in the mid-60s, okay, now that's Dylan making this leap. But don't let people tell you that Dylan was good all season or was good last season. It's not the case. He had moments. January of 2020, he was on fire. But from when he signed his extension through the end of the year last year, he couldn't make any shots. He went an entire calendar year from February of 2020 to February of 2021, where he made under 30% of his three-pointers and was shooting 37% from the field. This was over a massive sample size. It's like 60 games, a handful of games from the regular season last year, from the bubble last year, and then a good chunk of this season. At the All-Star break, Dylan was under 40% on field goals, and he was at 32% on three-pointers. Post-All-Star, he kicked it up to a a more respectable 43.6% on field goals and 36.5% on three-pointers. That's where he needs to be. He needs to be there. He clearly kicked it up in the postseason, in the series against Utah, the final 11 games of the year, he scored over 20 in nine of them. So he kicked it up, but this is still a guy who needs to work on his efficiency to become as good as he wants to be last year of all the players in the NBA to attempt at least 14 field goals per game. There was 56 players to do that. And Dylan was last in true shooting percentage among those last in points per game, last in effective field goal percentage. This year, his efficiency is up a little bit. This year, there were 59 players to attempt at least 14 field goals per game. And, hey, Dylan wasn't last. John Wall, Russell Westbrook, and Victor Oladipo all had lower effective field goal percentage. Those guys, plus DeJounte Murray, also all had lower true shooting percentages. And DeJounte Murray and Kevin Porter Jr. averaged fewer points per game than Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks is a good two-way player. I said all season he was a good two-way player. I said when he he wasn't making his shots that he was a good two-way player. You don't want to get rid of him. But let's not pretend like he was this Dylan Brooks all year or this Dylan Brooks last season. And we can be thrilled that he looked amazing and we can be hopeful that he continues to be that good. And I mean, we can be excited that he's not a question mark. He's a guy you want to have on your team. He's a guy you can build around. He's a guy who can play on a championship squad. And extremely importantly, he's the heart and soul of this team. This team loves each other. This team, if you look at the pictures on the plane after the game, it looks like a church group going somewhere because they're all so young and they're all the same age. And also none of them dress really fancy or anything. They're all just wearing t-shirts and hoodies and stuff. And they're all 22 or 23. So this is a very tight-knit group of young basketball players. And Dylan Brooks is their heart and soul. Also, most importantly, my favorite stat, I've said it before, I'll repeat myself from other episodes, Dylan Brooks did lead the NBA in total fouls this season. He led the NBA in total fouls for the second consecutive season and he is the first perimeter player in NBA history to ever lead the league in total fouls in consecutive seasons. Not fouls per game. He was third in fouls per game last season. But total fouls, overall fouls, no one fouls like Dylan. But anyway, let's take a quick break. I'll have some more stats about the rest of the team. And right after the break, let's go over this lineup data from the Jazz series that surprised even me. The economy
0: is made up of real people doing real stuff. And it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff.
1: All right, so another thing that was very positive about Dylan Brooks this season was that he led the Grizzlies in on-off net rating swing. According to Cleaning the Glass, the Grizzlies were 5.7 points per 100 possessions better on offense when Dylan Brooks played, and their defense was 3.2 points per 100 possessions better on defense when he played. So he led the Grizzlies in on off net rating. He took over that in the second half of the year from D'Anthony Melton, who was leading the team uh, through early March. But Dylan ended up finishing well ahead of him. You guys know I'm obsessed with De'Anthony Melton. And one of the reasons I'm obsessed with De'Anthony Melton is, to my eyes, he seems special. The things he can accomplish, very few other people can do. There's some stats to demonstrate that uh, that I'll get to in a little bit. But... To my eyes, he looks special, and then when you look at the lineup data and the stats, it says that the Grizzlies are better when he plays. Like last year, he led the team in the on-off net rating swing. The lineup combinations that involve D'Anthony Melton are usually all the best. Like for the regular season, the Grizzlies' best two-man unit in net rating, with a minimum of 300 minutes played together, was D'Anthony Melton and Dylan Brooks. The second best two-man unit was De'Anthony Melton and John ja Morant. Third best, D'Anthony Melton and Xavier Tillman. Fourth, Dylan Brooks and Desmond Bain. Fifth best, De'Anthony Melton and Brandon Clark. Last year, D'Anthony Melton had four of the five best two-man net rating combos. He actually had five of the top six. Now, eventually, I'm going to bring all this back to the Jazz series like I teased. But the Dylan Brooks and D'Anthony Melton this year, great combo. They were a good combo last year. When you think about wing play that we always argue, everyone's like, oh, should you play Desmond Bain? Should you play Grayson Allen, who seemed to get all the opportunity this year? Should you play DeAnthony Melton? And I'll admit, coming into this year, I wasn't open-minded. I had basically decided DeAnthony Melton was the best. So maybe I'm viewing all this through these highly prejudicial uh, DeAnthony Melton stained glasses, if you will. But like last year in August, in the bubble, after Jeremy Jackson Jr. got hurt... I was searching some tweets for this episode, like things I, I I said last year, and it was me pointing out that, again, last season, the data said without Jaron Jackson Jr. available, I'm like, well, they should play Ja and Melton and Dylan Brooks and Kyle Anderson and Jonas Valanciunas. Like, that's that's what we should do. That's the best option. Uh, and that was based on, again, me watching all the Grizzlies games and then feeling like, I feel like those are the best players, and then like, oh yeah, the, the data backs this up. So that's kind of why I become such an extremist, I think, (laughs) this year, or so radicalized about it. Because I already had this opinion. I've seen nothing to dissuade this opinion. And we just got more and more data that says, or at least to me, it reads, well, my opinion might be correct here, because the data still says these are the best options. So... I focus, I guess, a lot on like who should play with John Moran, because that feels like the toughest question. We, we accept John Moran. He's the best player. He's the star player. Uh, we've accepted Dylan Brooks has seized this role. So who do we pair with this guy? And also Kyle Anderson. All right, Kyle Anderson has secured his spot. So we have Ja, we have Dylan, we have Kyle Anderson. So I just look at the lineup data, and I'm like, okay, Let's just see how Grayson Allen, Desmond Bain, and Anthony Melton all stack up when they're playing with, say, just Jaw and Dylan. So this season, Grayson got the most opportunity. Grayson Allen played 1,300 possessions with Jaw and Dylan. The Grizzlies had a plus 2.9 net rating. That's okay. It's not negative. Not bad. Last year, these guys played, uh, had a negative 1.8 net rating together. It's not bad. Let's look at Desmond Bain. Desmond Bain played 880 possessions with Ja and Dylan. The Grizzlies were even better. They had a plus 5.0 net rating. Obviously, he wasn't on the team last year, so we can't compare that. Be like, all right, Desmond Bain, he's got a slightly better net rating. Uh, Better by two points per 100 possessions, which isn't that much. Then you look at the melted numbers. Oh, you're like, all right, Melton only played 376 possessions with Ja and Dylan together, but the net rating for the Grizzlies was plus 13.9. Massively better numbers. What was their net rating last year? Plus 9.7. Massively better numbers. So I'm like, oh, when Ja plays with Anthony and Dylan, things really take off. Now, here's where I started getting, again, this is the continual frustration. Look at the postseason numbers. This is the... the the two play-in games and the five games against the Jazz, the stats are basically identical. Clearly, there's a smaller sample size because we're only talking about seven games. But okay, last year Melton with Jot and Dylan, they were 9.7 per 100 possessions better. In the regular season this year, they were plus 13.9 per 100 possessions. Oh, in the postseason this year, they only played 58 possessions. They were plus 13.8. Now, these stats are virtually meaningless because all the Melton, Jaw, and Dylan minutes occurred essentially in the fourth quarter of game five when you're down 30. It's garbage time. So essentially, we have no sample size. They played three minutes when the series mattered. They played three minutes together. They were plus three. That's not net rating. They just outscored the Jazz by three points in the three minutes where Jaw, Dylan, and Anthony Melton played together against the Jazz. But let's think about Desmond Bain. Desmond Bain in the regular season with Jaw and Dylan, plus 5.0 per 100 possessions. In this postseason, the Grizzlies were killing when Desmond Bain was out there. They were plus 5.6 in 192 possessions. All right, that's good. Why don't we see it more? And there's Grayson Allen. The Grizzlies were minus 10.8 points per 100 possessions when Grayson Allen was on the court with Jaw and Dylan. Overall for the series, Grayson Allen was last on the Grizzlies in just total plus minus, raw plus minus. They were outscored by 55 points when Grayson Allen was on the court. They were only outscored by 42 points total in the series. If you throw out that garbage time fourth quarter where they outscored the Jazz by 14 points in the final fourth quarter of game five, all right, the Grizzlies were outscored by 55 points when Grayson Allen was on the court, and they were outscored by one point when he wasn't on the court. The Grizzlies played the Jazz even over five games when Grayson Allen was off the court. But that isn't even the stat. These aren't even the stats that I thought were like that interesting or mind-blowing. I feel very confident that the Grizzlies' best lineups this year and last year, but this year specifically, it's Ja Morant with Dylan Brooks at the three, with Kyle Anderson at the four, and then with a center. Let's say Jonas Valanciunas. I like Xavier Tillman. I like all the guys. I like Jaron Jackson Jr. I thought he was a better option against Rudy Gobert. But the Grizzlies' best lineup this year is Ja at the one, Dylan at the three, Kyle at the four, and then let's say Jonas or Jaron at the five, and then you have to pick. For me, it's Desmond Bain or DeAnthony Melton. DeAnthony Melton hasn't been hitting his shots that much recently, but he still puts up a good net rating when he's on the court usually. So my big frustration with the series against the Jazz, which you know if you listen to the episodes during the playoff series, is they didn't go to what I thought the team's strength was. They ended up choosing to play small with only one big on the court. They gave Kyle Anderson's minutes in games four and five to Grayson Allen and to Desmond Bain when I thought they should have played the regular lineups, the things they've been doing all year. I had long accepted they weren't going to play DeAnthony Melton a lot, even though I was pretty sure he was the best option. But if they'd just gone, in my opinion, with John ja Morant, Desmond Bain with Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson, and Jonas Valanciunas, they would have done pretty well. They barely did that lineup. So I went through the games and I tracked all the lineups where they did what I thought, again, the bare minimum of in putting your team in the best position, which is John ja Morant, either Desmond Bain or DeAnthony Melton with Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson, and a center. It was either Jonas Valanciunas or Jaron Jackson Jr. For 30 seconds, it was Xavier Tillman. But all season long, your best four players that we knew were your best four players were Ja Morant, Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson, Jonas Valanciunas. I know there's an argument. There's an angle to this. Like, well, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s back. You got to get him in the game. You got to play him. That makes it a little weirder. Yeah, I guess. But there was no reason for this lineup to be used this little. In the five-game series against the Jazz... They only used these lineups for 20 minutes. They only used John ja Morant, Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson together with another big, with a center, and then either Desmond Bain or Dante Melton for only 20 minutes in the series. And they outscored the Jazz by 33 points in those 20 minutes. They only played their best lineups, their best units together that they played all year for 20 minutes. In a five-game series. Their strength all year has been Kyle at the four. Their strength all year is Dylan Brooks alongside. It's been the best with Desmond Bain or DeAnthony Melton. You could even open it up to Tyus Jones minutes. If you had Desmond Bain or DeAnthony Melton at the two. With Dylan and Kyle at the three and the four. And any point guard in any center. Well, then that kicks it up to 26 minutes. They only did it for 26 minutes. And they outscored the Jazz by 37 points. These lineups were successful. They've been successful all year. Guess what? They've been successful last year. Ja, DeAnthony, Dylan, and Kyle this season with any center were plus 14.1 points per 100 possessions. Last season, they were plus 10.0 points per 100 possessions. Those guys got six minutes together in the Jazz series. They outscored the Jazz by eight. The other 14 minutes, it was with Bain, and Bain crushed on folks. I mean, Bain only got 19 shots in the series. He made 11 of them. That's 58% from the field for rookie Desmond Bain. And keep in mind, none of these minutes include that fourth quarter. This is, none of this is garbage time. It doesn't include the fourth quarter in game five. None of this is garbage time. If you want to poke holes in it, you start off by saying it, most of it was all in one game. In game one, the game that the Grizzlies prevailed, these lineups played seven and a half minutes together, and they outscored the Jazz by 23. In a game, the Grizzlies won by three points. Ja, Dylan, and Kyle, with either Desmond Bain or Dante Mountain, and a center, outscored the Jazz by 23 points in a game they won by three. The next game, these guys played eight and a half minutes together and they outscored them by three. They played eight and a half minutes together in a 48-minute game. They outscored the Jazz by three. They lost by 12. In game three, they abandoned this idea totally. Grayson Allen plays 30 minutes. He starts knocking down a few shots. In game three, zero minutes of these strong lineups. Game four, they play three minutes total. They outscore the Jazz by three points in these three minutes. They lose the game by seven. And then in game five, they play four minutes together. Over the past, over the final three games of the series, games three, four, and five, we're talking seven minutes of Kyle at the four with Dylan at the three with John Morant on the court. They outscored the Jazz by seven points. In those minutes. This is non-garbage time stuff. They were down by 30. They played four minutes with John Morant, with Dylan Brooks at the three, Kyle Anderson at the four. I couldn't believe the stats. I know what I think works for the Grizzlies, and I know I'm so entrenched in my beliefs now that I have trouble seeing uh, any other perspective. But I was surprised when I saw the actual numbers. And I don't think the Grizzlies would have beaten the Jazz. I feel like I've already said that. Even if they stuck with this, the Jazz were way better. But it felt like they were not putting their best foot forward, and I feel like the stats kind of bear that out. Anyway, let's wrap up this by going over some of the stats of these other players. Yes, Grayson Allen, I pick on him a little bit, but Grayson Allen had a career year. Sure, if you throw out his one good game against the Jazz, he was 6-for-22 in that series, which is 27% on field goals. But get this, if you throw out DeAnthony Melton's one good shooting game against the Jazz, he was also 6-for-22 from the field which is 27%. That is some beautiful symmetry. But Grayson Allen set career highs this year in points per game, assists per game, rebounds per game. He averaged a career high 2.13s per game. That is the seventh highest three-pointers per game in Grizzlies franchise history for a player who played at least 50 games. The only players in Grizzlies franchise history to make more three-pointers per game in a season are Mike Miller, Mike Conley, and then Jaron Jackson Jr. last season, and Tyreek Evans. Mike Miller holds the franchise record for most three-pointers per game in a season at 2.9 threes per game. Desmond Bain, like we said, had a great rookie year. He posted the fifth most accurate three-point shooting season in Grizzlies history overall. He finished 13th in the NBA, shooting 43.2%. From three, Bain had the fifth most accurate season in Grizzlies franchise history. From three, D'Anthony Melton posted the sixth most accurate season. D'Anthony Melton made 41.2% of his three-pointers. Both Melton and Bain averaged 1.7 made threes per game. The top four seasons in Grizzlies franchise history for three-point accuracy are Mike Miller, Mike Miller, Westperson, and Mike Miller. Now, D'Anthony Melton, the player who I cannot judge objectively, he made some big strides in his second season on the Grizzlies by improving that three-point percentage. He lifted his overall field goal percentage from 40.1% last year to 43.8% this year, but again, shockingly, went from 28.6% on 2.3 threes per game to 41.2% on 4.1 threes per game. He became just the second player in Grizzlies franchise history to average one steal per game, half a block per game, while making 40% of his three-pointers. Michael Dickerson is the other. Now, Melton, because of his unique game, because of the blocks and the steals and the three-pointers, he puts up a lot of stats that aren't really mimicked or mirrored anywhere in NBA history. The only players in the NBA this season to have one three-pointer made per game, one steal, two and a half assists, and half a block while shooting 40% from three. I know we're getting real specific, real arbitrary on the stats. But the only guys in the NBA this year to get half a block per game, two and a half assists, one steal, one made three and shoot 40% from three was Kyrie Irving and DeAnthony Melton. Melton was the first player in NBA history to average one three per game, one steal per game, two and a half assists, and half a block per game in under 25 minutes per game of playing time. No one's ever produced that before. His per-36 stuff, if you want to throw out even the three-point accuracy, if you just want to include the steals, blocks, and assists, it's like him and Scottie Pippen and him and Dr. J. If you want to say per-36 guys to average over two two threes made per-36, two steals and one block, only Robert Covington has done it. If you put in the assists, no one. It's just Melton. It's just highlighting that Melton is unique. Tyus Jones, he actually had kind of a letdown this season. He did lead the NBA in assisted turnovers for the third consecutive season. But beyond that, uh, you know, he took a step back on the three-pointers. Um, he started the year on a pretty big three-point slump. And so his three-point percentage dropped from last year's very encouraging to only 32% this year. So a bit of a letdown from Tyus Jones. Xavier Tillman had another strong rookie season, much like Desmond Bain had a strong rookie season. He delivered whenever he got an opportunity. The Grizzlies were 14-7 this year in games where Tillman played at least 20 minutes. This is not a circumstance of like the Grizzlies were up big when they cleared his bench. It actually was the opposite. He got 20 minutes in some games where the Grizzlies were getting killed. So the Grizzlies had a very good record when he played at least 20 minutes. He started 12 games. The Grizzlies were 6-6 six and six in those games, but very stiff competition. They actually beat more teams against the West's top 10 when Tillman started than when Jonas Valanciunas started. Tillman racked up five wins against the other top 10 teams in the West, where Valanciunas in the regular season only racked up three. As far as the rest of the roster, I didn't really compile any uh, fancy stats for those guys. I don't have a big strong opinion. I mean, Justice Winslow uh, was quite the disappointment. As far as the other rookies, the two-way players, Sean McDermott and Killian Tilly, and then there's Jonte Porter. I would accept any argument you had about those guys. Personally, I think Jonte Porter might be gone. I assume we will see Killian Tilly and Sean McDermott in summer league. If I had to pick one among these guys who had the best season, I think it's definitely Killian Tilly showed some flashes that maybe he could be uh, an NBA contributor. And like I said, there's going to be summer league this year in August and I assume all those guys will play assuming Sean McDermott's sore foot is okay. John Conchar still showed flashes again this year, showed what made him stand out last year as a guy with a nose for the ball and someone who I think might have a, a decently long NBA career, especially if he develops uh, that outside shot a little bit. To wrap this up, just a few team stats. The Grizzlies led the NBA in steals per game this year. It's the fourth time they've done that in their franchise history, which I guess is... Vaguely interesting. They also led the NBA in points in the paint, fast break points, and second chance scoring. They finished fourth in the league in assists per game. Last season, they finished second in assists per game. Those are the two highest team finishes that the Grizzlies have ever had. This season, the Grizzlies averaged the most points per game in franchise history at 113.3 points per game. Last year, 112.6 was the previous high. They averaged the most assists per game in their franchise history. It was virtually the same number as last year. Also the same for total rebounds. Just shows they're playing at a faster pace. This was the first season in Grizzlies franchise history to have three players average over 17 points per game. That is John Morant, Jonas Valanciunas, and Dylan Brooks. Only 13 players in Grizzlies franchise history have actually ever averaged over 17 points per game. In chronological order, it's Sharif abdul rahim Michael Dickerson, both those while the team was in Vancouver, and then in the Memphis era, Pal Gasol, Mike Miller, Rudy Gay, OJ Mayo, Zach Randolph, Mike Conley, Mark Gasol, Jaron Jackson Jr., Jonas Valanciunas, Morant, and Dylan Brooks this season. And that wraps up this Grizzlies season wrap-up. Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope there were some stats in there you'd never heard before. In the next few episodes, I'll start looking at this roster that, again, has a lot of players under contract, so there probably won't be much movement. But we'll start thinking about moves that will be made or could be made this offseason, looking ahead to some free agency, some trade ideas, and then the draft, which happens on July 29th. The Grizzlies have the 17th pick. So we'll have to learn about some draft prospects. But anyway, thanks for listening to this episode. Please tell some other Grizzlies fans about it so they can enjoy it as well. Hope you have a good Monday. Talk to you soon. Go Grizz! On July twenty third,
2: 1993, basketball superstar Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan, was murdered in North Carolina.
0: This is the father of the most famous athlete on the planet. And on his 57th birthday, he was an unidentified dead man in the middle of
2: nowhere. From WREL Studios, available now is Follow the Truth, where we dig into the story of the James Jordan murder and the man who says he didn't do it.
0: I know that if this was not Michael Jordan's file, I wouldn't be in prison.
2: We'll question the evidence. Is it
0: possible for a man to be shot in his car and authorities not find any blood?
2: Our ballistics expert says it couldn't have happened. Shed light on the mystery that has always surrounded the murder. Whether his financial dealings could have had anything to do with his death. And uncover bombshell new developments.
0: Here we are a quarter century later and the back cover on this whole murder case isn't yet closed.
2: Follow the truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.